We'd like to continue tonight in the 37th chapter of the book of Genesis as we are taking a look at the life of a man by the name of Joseph that in so many ways was a picture and type of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we take a look at Genesis chapter 37, I was thinking about this today, it's almost like you're reading in this one chapter, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's so many things that come to our attention in this chapter that should remind us of the Savior in his life. Last week, we noticed a number of things in which Joseph is a type and picture of Christ, and we will not go back in detail, but in terms of just a quick review, we know that Joseph was a son of Jacob. He was one of 12 brothers. And we find that Jacob loved him, a son of his old age, and gave him a coat of many colors, a coat of distinction to separate him from the rest of them. We find that this caused envy and hatred in the hearts of his brothers. As we look at this chapter, we'll see Joseph again representing Jesus in some ways, and some, at some times we see even Jacob representing the father of our Savior. And we'll see that Joseph's brothering uh, represent the nation of Israel, the Jews, during the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. We find three times that the Bible says that his brothers hated him. It says they hated him, they hated him for his words, and they hated him for his dreams and his words. We find that to be the case with Jesus during his lifetime. The Jewish people hated him for who he was as person and also for his teachings, for his words. We find that God gave Joseph two dreams. One represented an, an earthly view and one a heavenly view. And this points us to the fact that our Lord and Savior is Lord of Lord and King of Kings, both on earth, but also in heaven. It was a picture of his future exaltation, that one day he would be exalted. It didn't happen immediately, but one day he would be exalted. And his brothers didn't like that. The very idea that day would come in which they would actually bow down to Joseph, their brother, seemed absolutely absurd. And it irritated them and made them mad. And they were angry and they were envious. Anger and malice and envy are three things that will destroy someone. You look over here in the book of Galatians chapter 5, we oftentimes go over here to verse 22. We like to look at the fruit of the Spirit, the ninefold fruit of the Spirit. But just above there, in verse 19, we have a list of the works of the flesh. And there's 17 of those. That's just about twice as many works of the flesh as there are the fruit of the Spirit. And of those 17 works of the flesh, one is envy and one is hatred. You look in Titus 3.3, and Paul says, For we ourselves were sometimes deceived, serving divers' lust and pleasures, living in envy, and hateful, and hating one another. Notice again the word envy and the word hateful and hating. He says, and we were sometimes like that. That's our nature. That's our human nature. And there was a time in our life where that was manifest until we were born of the Spirit. And it's still a possibility. We have to crucify the old man and crucify the flesh. So we see a manifestation of the works of the flesh in the hearts of Joseph's brethren. And after the dreams are told and they become even more envious and hateful toward him, Jacob mildly rebukes him. But then the Bible says that Jacob thought on these things. 
That tells me there was something about them that caused Jacob to pause and think that perhaps there's more to this than just meets the eye. So that takes us up to verse 12. Genesis chapter 37, verse 12. And in many ways, this chapter is going to be the most important chapter from here to the end of the book of Genesis through chapter 50. And I say that from the standpoint, it's like a a foundation. Uh, It's uh, on which the rest of this chapter in his life is built upon. It's going to give us reasons in this chapter here as to why things happen uh, concerning Joseph as we continue the study. So here we have Genesis 37 and verse 12. It says, And his brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. Now we're going to look at uh, three or four different geographical locations here tonight and the significance of it. The word Shechem, it means shoulder, which is, that, uh, is a picture, you might say, of burden bearing and heavy loads. That's what the word Shechem means. Shechem was one of six cities that was set aside as six cities of refuge that we read in Joshua chapter 20. Remember, these cities were set aside, three on one side of Jordan and three on the other side of Jordan. When someone slew somebody, they could flee to a city of refuge until their case was determined. Shechem was one of those. But the most important thing, perhaps, that you need to look about concerning the city of Shechem is found a little earlier in chapter 34 in the book of Genesis. For it was in this place... Well, actually, this place is named for a man that's name was Shechem. His father's name was Hamor. And Shechem wanted to be with Joseph's sister, Dinah. Now, Jacob had 12 sons, but as far as the record is concerned, he had one daughter. Her name was Dinah. And Dinah was defiled by Shechem. And Shechem and Hamor wanted Jacob to give Dinah unto them. But Jacob's other sons and Joseph's brothers felt like that she had been mistreated and defiled and through deception. We find where they will slay every male in that area. Shechem, his father, and every male by having them to agree to circumcision. And on the third day when they were extremely sore, they went through the camp with their swords and they slew every single one of them. So that gives me a picture that Shechem is a place of bloodshed. Shechem is a place of sorrow. Shechem is a place of conflict. And it's a picture of the world in which we're living here. And that's important. Remember that. So it's interesting here that Shechem is the place where Jacob's brothers are feeding their father's flock. Why would they be there? Shechem is about 50 miles away from where they're at. They are in um, Hebron. They're in Hebron. That's about 50 miles. Now, 50 miles might not sound long, far to you today. When you get in a car and cover that in about 45, 50 minutes. Some people, 35 or 40. But anyway, you cover that distance in a relatively short period of time. But not if you're on foot. Not if you're traveling 50 miles on foot. That's a, that's a long ways. So why are they so far away and in a place where Jacob and his sons really are despised? They're not welcome in that land, and yet that's exactly where Jacob's brethren are feeding Jacob's flock in this place called Shechem. Now, verse 13 says, And Israel, that's Jacob, said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Well, yes, they do. Come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said unto him, Here am I. Now, we notice here that Jacob gives a command 
to Joseph. It's Jacob's will for Joseph to go and check on his brethren in the flocks in a place called Shechem. We notice that Joseph doesn't hesitate. Joseph doesn't, you know, object. Joseph uh, doesn't procrastinate about it. Joseph says, here am I. That ought to remind you of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because time and time again in the Gospels, you'll find where Jesus said that the Father sent him. I usually like to go to John 6, 38 and 39, when Jesus said, For this is the Father's will which hath sent me. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will that sent me, that all he hath given me, I shall lose nothing, but raise up again at the last day. Jesus said the Father sent him. And he sent him to do his will. Jacob is going to send Joseph, and Joseph's going to completely and totally obey to the will of his father, Jacob. Now, the question might arise. Now, the Bible is filled with questions, but thankfully the Bible is filled with answers. But there's some questions that's going to come to your mind. A good Bible reader is going to have some questions that the answer to those questions may not be apparent. It may not be right there clear. And there's some questions about this. Once again, why are they 50 miles away? Surely there was some good grazing land closer than Shechem. They're in a place where they're not really well received. It just might be that Joseph's brother are up to things he ought not, might ought, ought to be up to. <laughs> they may be involved with things, with inhabitants that land that they ought not to be involved with. And then why would Jacob send his son and send him in the very robe of many colors that created the envy and the jealousy to begin with? He could have sent his could have sent a servant. Servant could have went and found out how they were doing, just as well as Joseph, I suppose. Joseph didn't hesitate. Joseph and Jacob both know that his brothers, Jacob's other sons, envy him and hate him. Why would you send your son that your other sons hate and envy 50 miles away to check on them and send him out by himself? Well, if you turn over to the 104th Psalm, you may read here where the scripture tells us that God sent him before. He sent him ahead of time because there's things that's going to happen down the road in the future that only Joseph can take care of. And God in his wisdom and God in his providence knows what he's doing. So in his providence, we're going to find Jacob's not going to send a servant. He's going to send his son Joseph and he's going to send him with his coat of many colors. So Joseph completely and immediately obeys, picturing the Lord Jesus Christ coming from heaven. Now let's take a look at these two places here. In verse 14, he said unto him, Go, I pray thee, see whether it be well with thy brethren and well with the flocks. This reveals the heart of Jacob. And bring me word again. So he sent him out of the vale of Hebron and he came to Shechem. The vale of Hebron. The word veil means valley. They're dwelling in Hebron in the valley. The word valley usually in scripture is a picture of that which is pleasant and peaceful. In Psalms 23, David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside the still waters. And green pastures and still waters usually existed in the valleys. Notice the picture, still waters green pastures, 
That's what I desire in life, isn't you? <laughs> That's what the church is a picture of when the Lord's people behave themselves as they ought to. It's a place of green pastures where the flock can come and graze and feed the wonderful truths of God's Word. And they lay down beside the still, pasture, or the still waters, which indicate peaceful. The waters aren't stirred. They're not muddied up. They're clear and they're peaceful, you see. That's what the word veil means. And the word Hebrew means fellowship. Now, you'll read about Hebron later on when Caleb comes to Joshua in the book of Joshua and reminds him that he was promised a certain mountain when they crossed Jordan's River into the land of Canaan. And now at the age of 80, on his birthday, he's ready to claim that mountain. That mountain is Hebron. It means fellowship. We find where um, Caleb obtained fellowship with God because he wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, he wholly followed the Lord. That's where Jacob's at. That's where Joseph's at. What did the Lord Jesus Christ have before he came into this world in heaven? He had perfect fellowship with the Father, didn't he? He had perfect fellowship with the Father, and the Father sends him from heaven down to the earth. What a contrast that is. We're here on this earth, and our desire and our hope is to leave this earth and go to heaven. <laughs> and one day we will because he was willing to leave heaven and come down here. He was willing to leave the veil of Hebron, you might say, and come down to Shechem. And that's exactly what Joseph is doing here. He's completely obedient to the will of his earthly father, Jacob. And he's going to travel 50 miles, which will take him about three days by foot to get there. Go to verse 15. A certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What seekest thou? Now, when Jesus was here, Jesus also was a wanderer. Not because he didn't know where he was at. When Jesus was born, he grew up, in the horse, of course, in the household of Joseph and Mary. But when Jesus turned 30 and went out on his ministry, there's no record of Jesus having a permanent residence. You ever think about that? You go to John chapter 7, and the last verse of John chapter 7 says the disciples departed and went to their house. Didn't say anything about Jesus. The very next verse, John 8, 1, says in Jesus went into the Mount of Olives. He spent a lot of time there, but that wasn't his home. Jesus wandered from place to place. One time we read of Jesus in Galilee. Next time we read of Jesus in Samaria. Then we read about Jesus in Jerusalem. We read about Jesus in Bethany. We read about Jesus in the Mount of Olives. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. All these different places, Jesus was always on the move, wasn't he? He was a wanderer from that point of view. Now, Joseph here is wandering in a field and a man comes along and asks him, what seekest thou? And he said, I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. The purpose of Jesus was to seek his brethren. When Jesus left heaven, the purpose of Jesus leaving heaven was to come and save his people from their sins. But we find in, in the Gospel of Luke where the Lord Jesus Christ said that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Now he came among his own people. Jesus came among his brethren to seek and save that which was lost. And Zacharias is a, an example of that. Zacharias was a very rich publican. He was a Jew. And the Lord Jesus Christ came to his house with that experience he had with Jesus without going into details tonight. We find that this man obtained a deliverance. This man, and this is where we read in, Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, 
that Jesus came to save that which was lost. Zacchaeus was lost. Not, his, not, heaven's not under consideration here. Not under consideration at all. He was lost to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, lost to the teachings of the Savior. But when he got through, when Jesus got through with him, he knew who Jesus was, you see. So we find where Joseph's come to seek his brethren. And the man says, I, they are departed hence, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren. Notice again, it's just like a shepherd going after a lost sheep, right? Does that not that language remind you of that? He went after his brethren. Remember the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, uh, 15, I believe it is, anyway, where we find the man who had the hundred sheep and he lost one. The Bible says he went after that one sheep. Jesus went after his brethren. Uh, excuse me, Joseph did. Now, I want to just ask you a question here. This has been a good time for Joseph to turn around and went back home. <laughs> He's done travel three days. He went to where his father sent him. His brethren aren't there. He could have just said, well, I, I guess I'll just head back home. But he inquired. He told the man. He came to seek his brother. The man says, your brethren are in the place called Dothan. And the word Dothan, by the way, means custom. It means law. When Jesus came to this world, that's a picture of where the Jewish people were at. They were under the law. They were under the law. The custom of the Old Testament, they were under the law, under Moses' law. That's where Jesus found them. So Joseph could have just turned around, went back home, told Jacob, his father, well, I couldn't find them. But he doesn't do that. That reminds me of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophet Isaiah describes him. Isaiah 42 and verse 4. He says, he shall not fail nor become discouraged. And that word discouraged right there uh, has a little different slant to it than we might normally think. It means he was not crushed. Jesus Christ, look, look his daily activities of Jesus. If you read the four Gospels, you just pay attention to the life of Jesus. Pay attention to his daily life and activities and you'll find he was opposed at every turn. He was ridiculed. He was criticized. He was mocked every day, every turn. Very few friends, you might say. Yet, it says, he shall not fail, neither shall he be crushed. An ordinary man couldn't have held up to that. Ordinary man wouldn't have lasted. Moses spoke to the Lord about leaving this world. Did he not? Elijah certainly did. Elijah seemed to think it was enough. He'd suffered enough. He'd had enough of this world. He, got, he felt crushed, did he not? Do you feel crushed every once in a while with the weight of this world? But aren't you glad there was one who went before you that was not crushed, who went through more than you'll ever go through, faced more than you will ever face, endured more than you will ever endure? He endured the cross and despised the shame. In Isaiah 52, 7, he said he set his face like a flint. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ knew what his journey was before him. And the Lord Jesus Christ took every step of the journey for 33 and a half years, he took every step of the journey from his arrival in this world to his departure, his ascension back to heaven. He left on time, he lived on time, he died on time, was buried on time, arose on time, and he ascended to heaven on time, and he'll come back on time. Aren't you glad of that? He shall not fail, and he did not, neither shall he become discouraged. So he goes to Dothan. And when they saw him afar off, how did they recognize him afar off? Because he had on the coat of many colors. That's why. When they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto him, 
they conspired against him to slay him. Envy and jealousy and hatred has a way of just dwelling and staying a long time, doesn't it? See, this tells me then what we read early in this chapter was not something that just was a, you know, a spur of the moment thing and quickly it evaporated and went away. No, it is still there. It is still in the hearts of his brothers. When they see him afar off, they conspire against him. When the Lord Jesus Christ was born in this world, there was a conspiracy against him when he was afar off. In other words, he was still 30 years away from manifesting himself for who he was and why he came to this world. When he was afar off, Herod did all he could take the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then later on, we come to Matthew 27 and verse 1, and you read where the chief priests, scribes, and elders, they consulted against him. And they took counsel against him. In other words, they conspired against the Lord Jesus Christ like Joseph's brother did unto him. And they said one to another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. They didn't believe his dreams. They didn't believe his words. When you read the life of Christ and read about his teachings and his preaching, you'll find where time and time again he met with people who didn't believe his words. And you see this clearly when he's on the cross. The 27th chapter of Matthew comes into play numerous times here in this chapter. Now also Mark, Luke, and John, but Matthew 27 in particular. And in Matthew 27, we got people around the cross who are mocking Jesus and reviling Jesus. Obviously not believing the words of Jesus. Time and time again, Jesus had stated how he would be betrayed by the chief priests, scribes, and elders. Time and time again, he stated how he would be taken by them and at how he would suffer and how he'd be crucified, how he'd be killed but after, and buried and after the third day he would rise again. But they didn't believe him. They mocked him. They said, he that said he would destroy the temple in three days raise it up again. They're mocking him when they said, Jesus said that. But they're mocking Jesus, you see. They're mocking him. And they said he saved others. Himself he cannot save. He be the Christ, the Son of God. Let it come down from the cross. And then we will believe him. Then we will, it, it shouldn't have took that for them to believe him. <laughs> if they understood who he was, the Son of God, they should have believed every word that came out of his mouth. You ever heard somebody say, I don't believe a word that comes out of his mouth. <laughs> I met a few people like that. Somebody says, how do you know a politician is lying? You say, he's moving his mouth, isn't he? Now, that's how you know. <laughs> but there are some people, I do believe what comes out of their mouth, thankfully, because they've proven to be honest and truthful. But in Jesus Christ, there's no question you should believe every single word that comes out of his mouth. That's why he told Satan, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. They conspired against him when they saw him afar off. They said, behold, this dreamer cometh. He's a dreamer. That word dreaming means master of dreams. They're, they're mocking him. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him into some pit, and we will say some evil beast hath devoured him. Now here's their plan, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. I want to remind you one more time who's seeing, doing the speaking right here. These are brothers of Joseph. We're talking about flesh and blood. Brothers of Joseph. Now, mind you, some of them are half-brothers. Most of them are half-brothers. They all have the same father, but different mothers. But nevertheless, flesh and blood, 
you would think that's just no way somebody could say those things and do those things against somebody that's their own kin like that, their own brother. They did. Remember envy and hatred and malice. And Reuben heard it. Now, two of his brothers will come to our attention. Both of them are significant. Reuben was the firstborn. Norman, the firstborn, would come into the double portion of the blessings. But Reuben forfeited his right for that. And it's real clear, I think, that they all understood. Now, Jacob's going to bestow the blessings upon his son Joseph. And that's one of the reasons they, they hate him. But Reuben here, this speaks to his credit. Reuben, who would have received it, is not going to receive it. But he, he speaks up on behalf of Joseph here. When Reuben heard it, and he delivered them out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him that he might rid him out of their hands to deliver him to his father again. Now that's his plan. He's going to try to deliver him from the hands of his brothers. He's going to try to take him out of that pit when they're not looking and get him back to his father. So that's commendable on behalf of Reuben, correct? And it came to pass when Joseph was come unto his brethren, notice again, his brethren, it's always his brethren. You come to John chapter 1, verses uh, 9 and 10, we read where the Lord Jesus Christ was in the world, the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. And he came to his own, and his own received him not. His own was his Jewish brethren, you see. Now, as he comes to his brethren, they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him. Now, I know you are quite familiar with the scriptures, and you find this again in Matthew 27. When Jesus went through the mock trial, when Pilate gave the orders to crucify him, what did the soldiers do? They stripped his clothes off of him, didn't they? They stripped his robe off of him. Just like they stripped the coat of many colors off of Joseph. It, it must have gave them great pleasure in the flesh to do that. Here's this dreamer of dreamers. Here's this master dreamer. We'll see what becomes of his dreams. And they take him, and literally, to do that, I know they had to assault him. And now they take his coat away from him. Now they humiliate him. That's exactly what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was assaulted, wasn't he? He was buffeted. That means you take the palm of your hand and smite somebody beside the face. And he was uh, scourged. They took that cat of nine tails. They took that that whip with a piece of a bone or a piece of a metal on it, and they just opened up the back of the Lord Jesus Christ. They took his clothes away from him, leaving him practically naked. They humiliated him. And that's exactly what has taken place here with Joseph. I know they treated him roughly. You know they did. <laughs> and they stripped his clothes off him, coat him in colors, and they cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. You read about these kind of pits in other places in the Bible. You read where Jeremiah was put down into a pit. I think it says dungeon, basically the same thing, dungeon, pit. Some of these pits were cisterns. A cistern was made, you know, to, to collect and hold water, but was specifically told here, here's a pit and there is no water. There's nothing for him to drink. He's in this pit, there is no water. 
You go to the book of Zechariah, you'll find where the Lord speaks about people that are prisoners of hope who've been delivered out of the pit wherein is their water. By nature, we are all in a pit where there is no water. But through the grace of God, we're delivered out of that pit where there is no water. And now we become what? Prisoners of hope. And that's a, that's a wonderful thing to be a prisoner of. I'm glad tonight that I'm a prisoner of hope. How about you? Aren't you glad that you're in captivity to hope that God uh, has given you in your heart? That's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, this is his condition. They put him down. And the only way to get out of there, you have to have somebody to get you out of there. Remember Jeremiah's condition? How did they finally get Jeremiah out of that pit? They took old rags and uh, they put them down there and they did them in such a way where he could put them under Jeremiah's arms and they lifted him, Jeremiah, up out of that dungeon by these old rags that they, they, you know, put together to do it with. And they sat down to eat bread. They sat down to eat bread. It's amazing. While Joseph is in this pit crying out for help, and there's other verses to verify that, his brothers sit down beside him and just have a meal and eat bread. You go to Matthew chapter 27, and you'll find when they're crucifying the Lord and Jesus Christ, they've taken his coat away from him, and they have divided that coat into four different pieces, uh, the soldiers did. And then they took his, uh, one of his garments and they cast lots for it. That all fulfilled a prophecy in Psalms 22. And then the Bible says, and they sat down and watched him. They sat down and watched the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on that cross after all they've done to him. And his brothers have sat down right beside the pit where there is no water, where they've cast their brother Joseph into that pit. And they can sit down and have a meal. And they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going down to carry to Egypt. Now we read later on where these Ishmaelites are called Midianites. It's not a contradiction. These are interchangeable terms. Uh, they're the same folks. Sometimes they call Ishmaelites, sometimes they call Midianites. But it's interchangeable terms. And then we have a second brother. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him. Just like if we sell him to the Ishmaelites, we'll be free from this. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. Yeah, well, what's he doing in the pit then? And his brother were content. They, they think it's a pretty good idea. Do you read about another man that Judah might remind you of? You know, the name Judah in the Greek is Judas. Judas conspired with chief priests, scribes, and elders to deliver the Lord Jesus Christ into their hands for 30 pieces of silver. That likewise fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah. Now it's 20 pieces here, 30 pieces there, but the point is an arrangement, a business deal was put together. Both men are sold. One man's going to be sold into slavery. The other man's going to be sold as a prisoner to be crucified. Judah over here, Judas over here. 
Verse 28, Then there passed by Midianites, merchant men, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver, and they brought Joseph into Egypt. And Reuben returned to the pit. Remember Reuben, we lost him for a while, didn't we? Now he's back in the picture. Apparently Reuben had left, maybe to check on the sheep or something, we're not told, but he doesn't know anything about any of this going on. And Reuben comes, returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, and he rent his clothes. He just tore his clothes. That's his reaction. That's his response. And he returned to his brother and said, The child is not, and I, whither shall I go? Well, what in the world are we going to do? And they took Joseph's coat and killed a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in the blood. And they sent the coat of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, "We This have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or not. The law of sowing and reaping is before us in this passage. In the book of Galatians, in chapter 6, we're told, Be not deceived, what a man soweth, that shall he also reap. If he sows to the flesh, shall the flesh reap corruption. So to the spirit, the spirit reap life everlasting. Everything we say and everything we do is like sowing seed. And that seed comes up and we're going to, we're going to reap it in one, one category or the other. All right? You go back to Genesis chapter 26 and you read of a time when Jacob was on the flip side of this. Jacob and his mother come up with a plan to deceive Jacob's father, Isaac. His mother, Rebekah, had heard, overheard Isaac telling Esau to go and kill him some venison, his favorite meat. When he came back, he was going to bestow upon him a double portion, bestow upon him the blessing. She hears this and is going to try to get ahead of the game, and she tells Jacob to go and kill two kids of the goats. And she said, I'll make savory meat, and your father will think it's the venison. And then we'll take the skin of the goats and we'll put it on your arms and put it on your neck and we'll deceive him in thinking that you're Esau. Jacob, in the beginning, objects, not because he thinks it's wrong, but he thinks he's going to get caught. And his mother assures him this will all be on her and she'll have it all done just right where he's not going to get caught. So Jacob now becomes the accessory. Now he goes and he kills two kids, what of the goats. His brother is going to kill a goat, a kid of the goat. And they're going to dip his coat in the blood of that goat. And they present it to their father, Jacob, and lie to him and deceive him, just like Jacob lied and deceived his father, Isaac, some years before. The very thing that happened to Jacob in his own life when he was still known, you know, back then as, as Jacob, which means trickster and supplanter, now it comes home to him. He's reaping exactly what he sowed years ago. You know, you might not think what we've done is going to catch up with us, but it always does. You may write a check today, and maybe you don't cash it for a year. <laughs> and we do a lot of check writing early in life, don't we? And later on in life, we do a whole lot of check cashing. It's best not to write those checks. The day will come when you'll have to cash them. Jacob wrote a big check back over here early in his life. 
And now he's casting it over here in his latter days. His brother said, we found it. They didn't find it. Obviously, he took it off of, off of Joseph. And I had this thought here as we bring our remarks toward a conclusion here tonight. They stripped Joseph of his coat of many colors. And they stripped the Lord Jesus Christ of his apparel. But they never did strip the Lord Jesus Christ of his coat of many colors in his entire lifetime. Figuratively speaking. Remember how I told you that Christ wore that coat of many colors in so many different ways? In his conception? In his early life? In his baptism? In his crucifixion? Nobody ever died like Jesus did. In other words, that coat of many colors is a coat of separation, a coat of distinction. They never did take that coat off the Lord Jesus Christ. I can tell you that now. They took the literal one that he wore. They took that off of him. But figuratively speaking, they never took the coat of many colors off the Savior. And here we find they bring that coat. And by the way, when they took that coat of many colors off of Joseph, what did that leave him? Nothing. They put him into a pit where there's no water, nothing to drink, no doubt, cold and damp in that pit. He doesn't have a coat to wear, does he? When he's taken out of that pit and sold to the Ishmaelites, away he goes down to Egypt with basically nothing on. That's how he made that trip all the way down to Egypt. The Lord Jesus Christ hangs on the cross in a similar fashion. But while they took his clothes off him, they never took the coat of many colors off of him. I can tell you that now. And Jacob responds and says, and he knew it. And he said, it's my son's coat. He identifies it. An evil beast hath devoured him. Now, evil beast didn't devour him. Who told Jacob that evil beast devoured Job? Nobody. He just jumped to conclusions. Ever been guilty of that? Ever been guilty of something just like that where you form an opinion immediately about a situation only to find out a little bit later on that you're wrong about it? And Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his day, son many days. Now Joseph is not dead, but Jacob believes he is. And the feeling that he has at this time is just as powerful and just as strong as if Joseph was actually dead. In his mind, Joseph is dead. And all of his sons and all his daughters, now when he says daughters here, he's talking about daughter-in-laws. As far as the reckoned son, he only had one. And all of his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. Oh, the hypocrisy in this. But he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning, Thus his father wept for him. And the Midianites sold him into Egypt, unto Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's and captain of the guard, which means he was chief of the slaughtermen or executioners. Now he was really high, a high-ranking official. And that's who Joseph is going to wind up in the household of. The Midianites are going to sell him unto Potiphar. And that's where we will leave Joseph for tonight. And we will pick him back up, Lord willing, in the beginning of Genesis chapter 39. Now he said, Brother Lawrence, why about Genesis chapter 38? We're going to jump over that one. And the reason we're going to jump over chapter 38 is when you read it, go ahead and read it. It, it seems like it's out of place. I know it's not, but it seems like it. 
So until I can get it in place, we're just going to skip over it <laughs> and go to chapter 39. And it'll pick up exactly where 37 ends, 39 will open up to us. And that's where we'll start, Lord willing, two weeks from tonight.